0: Before I begin uh, talking about this passage, let's just pause again in prayer and ask that God's Spirit would open the Scriptures to this one. Lord God, You are a glorious and a wonderful God and You have spoken to us in Your Word. And we thank You for the Bible. And we thank You for the freedom that we have to study and read Your Bible, to hear it preached and taught today as we gather for that, we pray that your spirit would work through the proclamation of your word. We pray that your spirit would open the scriptures to us, that we understand them better and that they would make an impact on the way that we think and the way that we act and the way we relate to you, our God. So speak now, Father. For we are listening and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in uh, January my oldest daughter was married mm-hmm. and so uh, that meant last year and uh, before that we were going through the boyfriend, girlfriend, courting, dating, engagement, thing. And uh, I have to say she has married a delightful young fellow. We, we liked him from day one. It was really no drama. When he, took me out for a coffee to ask me if you could have the hand of my daughter. I knew what was coming, and I really didn't have to think twice about saying yes. But I wonder how I would have felt if my daughter had brought home a guy like Samson. <laughs> I wonder what I would have said if a guy like that had taken me out for coffee, probably for a beer, and uh, you know, he had long hair and Big five-step, real, real bloke and uh, has a bit of an eye for the, the ladies as well as my young ladies. Fiery, unpredictable, bit of a temper, perhaps. I wonder how I would have felt. Probably scared. As it was, my daughter's fiancé was scared of me. <laughs> which is a much better way around. <laughs> but you see, we have this problem, don't we, when we come to the book of Spencer? It seems like this guy is a walking disaster. It, it seems like he's the sort of guy you absolutely do not want to go out with your daughter and you don't want him hanging around the church youth group. <laughs> he's this big, messy bloke who goes out with the wrong kind of girls, misuses his bisex, loses his temper and compromises his walk with God. What do you do with it? And and why are four chapters of the Bible devoted to this dodgy guy? Is this a series of lessons in how not to live for God? Is this a series of lessons in who not to let your daughter go out with? I don't think so. In fact, I want to put to you today that the story isn't chiefly about Samson anyway. It's about the God of Samson. When you're reading any passage of the Bible, particularly when you're reading narrative passages, a good motto to have in your head is God is the hero of every story. That's the best way to read Old Testament narrative in particular. God is the hero of every story. I think that's true, even when God doesn't seem to be there on the surface of the narrative. Think of the book of Esther. God's name is not even mentioned in the book of Esther, yet I would argue that God is the hero of the story.
1: And there we learn that God
0: is working behind the scenes. Here, in the story of Samson, just because Samson is so dynamic and in a way bizarre, it can be hard for us to get our focus where it's meant to be, on God. And if there's shock value in the story, in a way the shock value is with God, not with what Samson's doing, but what on earth God doing? Why does God use someone like this? What are God's plans and purposes? Why does he raise up someone like this? handsome to deliver his people. Well in chapter 13 that's exactly what's going on. God is raising up a deliverer, a saviour for his people. In chapter 13 God is preparing salvation for his people. And there are three things I want us to think about. The first is that he prepares an unsought salvation. He prepared an unsought salvation. In the previous 12 chapters of the book of Judges, there has been a repeated cycle. The cycle goes like this. It begins with disobedience. God's people disobey them, the people of Israel living now in the promised land. Rebel against the Lord, and they compromise their walk with, their Lord, with the Lord, and they sin, and they break His command. There's blatant disobedience. These are some of the most wicked and evil days in the history of God's people. And so, disobedience turns to the second stage of the cycle, of the cycle, discipline. God disciplines His people by handing them over to their enemies. He hands it over to the nations surrounding them who rule them and subjugate them. And that is the Lord's discipline for his people. That leads to the third part of the cycle which is desperation. After some time, under the discipline of foreign nations, God's people cry out to him for mercy. They feel desperate, they feel indeed, need, and they realise perhaps their sin, and they certainly realise their need of deliverance, and so they cry out to God in desperation. And then fourthly, (coughs) there's deliverance. God raises up a judge. And a judge in the book of Judges is a national leader who rescues them from the enemy, who delivers them. And under the leader there's a time of peace and perhaps prosperity until the cycle repeats again. All up there are twelve judges. And this cycle has gone round eleven previous times. But now at the beginning of the Samson story there's a stage mythic in the cycle. We read in verse 1, it's very fast, you can almost over it, but we read in verse 1, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, there's the disobedience. And the Lord handed them over to the Philistines before he hears, there's the discipline. But what is missing is there is no cry of desperation. There's no record in this story, under this judge, of the people crying out to God to save them. In fact, it seems that God's people will live almost contentedly under Philistine rule. If you flip forward a bit to the verse which we'll see again later, in chapter 15, verse 11, Samson is trying to seek shelter amongst his own people in Judah, and the people of Judah say to him, Samson, don't you realize the Philistines are rulers over us? that <coughs> don't you realise the book? They just accept it. that like that's illegal, the book are in charge, so don't rock the boat, don't cause us trouble. They're in enemy hands and they accept it. They've never been so submitted to God's rule, but they're totally submitted to Philistine rule. They sinned and stirred God's anger and he handed them over to their enemies, and they seemed to be completely oblivious of it. Picture just how unthinkable that really is. Imagine that you heard on the news books tomorrow morning that Palestinian forces had invaded Israel, and a visual report suggests that Israel has decided to accept Palestinian, Palestinian rule. Can you imagine hearing that sort of business from tomorrow morning? It is unthinkable, Never. Israel never tolerates that. And yet, it is essentially the same two nations in the is story. Israel, God's people, and the Philistines. And it is eventually from the word Philistine that we get the word Palestine. It is political madness and it is spiritual madness for Israel to accept philosophical. But I think sometimes we can be just as mad. We as Christian people and our churches can sometimes find that we have capitulated to the world and we don't even realize it. The world's agenda has become our agenda. The world's rules and standards have become ours and we don't see that there's anything wrong. What does that look like in practice? Let me give a very downward example of I'll speak of a fictional character, but hopefully a believable character by the name of Jim, and I have to apologise to any Jims who might be present. Imagine Jim. Jim is um, uh, in a well-paying job, but he's been offered another promotion. And uh, he takes it gladly. This is a great opportunity, it's good for his career, and it will have more money. There will be more time involved, but this is, this is an excellent uh, move for Jim. Uh, Jim's children are growing and, and they're getting involved in a range of activities. Some of them are into sports, some are into music, uh, some of them are quite academic, they're doing well. <coughs> One of his sons is uh, playing footy extremely well and seems to have uh, real potential as a footy player. There are more and more games on Sundays, more and more Sunday commitments and matches, but that's, well, that's part of the deal. His wife, well she's pretty pretty actually, she's 30 something, but he quite likes her looking 20 something. And so, you know, there's a fair bit of money spent on haircuts and manicures and mm. clothes, pretty tight, low-cut clothes I must have Evening, Jim's pretty tight, bit of a couch potato really, usually Jim's on the box and watches whatever is on been busy, he running around with kids after work, and so then he's crashing. he crashing get Jim gets on to church whenever he can, he's certainly a uh, believer. But weekends are fairly pressured and often uh, home renovations, he's got some pretty big projects on the go at home at the moment, they tend to take a lot of time. And so it's hard for him to get involved in any of the ministry of the church. Give a picture of Jim's life. If you told Jim that the enemy is setting the agenda for his life, he'd laugh. If you said you are proud of God and in a dangerous position spiritually, he'd say, well, What are you talking about?" He has capitulated to the world's agenda. Everything that he's living for, his job, his money, his uh, successful kids, his pretty wife, his home renovations and his TV, everything that he's living for is really the agenda of the world around us. And not a distinctive agenda of the kingdom of heaven. But he has capitulated to that. And I want to suggest to all of you that there is nothing more dangerous than to be in a place where you do not constantly wrestle. If you don't wrestle with what to wear, what fashions to buy into and whatnot. if you don't wrestle with what to watch on TV and on DVD and at the movies, if you don't wrestle with what hours to work, and what priorities to have, and where to spend your money, and how much you actually need to earn. If you don't wrestle with these things, what you're going to do in your retirement years, and how you're going to use your time, and how much you're going to plow into the Super Ann in advance, and how many overseas trips you're going to have. If you don't wrestle with those things, from the perspective of what God wants in your life, then chances are you have capitulated to the enemy agenda without even knowing it. But thank God He comes to us and He shapes us and He wipes us not only when we don't deserve it, but when we don't even want it. Jesus is going to ask for help because Judas does need help. Israel wasn't asking for help because they had no sense that they needed help. (coughs) Non-Christians don't usually ask for help because they don't sense their need of difficulty. And often we don't ask for help because we don't realise how desperate we really are. God is the God of unsought salvation. That's a wonderful thing. God has a way of breaking into the lives of people who don't even know that they need God. He can break into a church when you leave this it. He can break into the life of a non-Christian. And he can break into the life of a believer who is capitulated. And I have to say, I am so thankful for the times when God has messed up my bad little plans. When I have had a, an agenda, a direction, an idea that's not been good and not been right, and God has messed it up. And for a while, I feel a little bit grumpy with him. And then I come to my senses and I've realized what a blessing it is that God is the God unsought salvation. God is the initiator. The story of grace is always the story of God initiating his work amongst his people. And he doesn't just do that once in our lives. Thankfully, he does it again and again and again. He has a whole range of ways of coming into our lives in an unsought way. It might be sickness. It might be losing a job. It might be a service. Can you thank God for the unsought deliverance that you have had? That's what God is beginning to do in Judges 13. He's about to do something that the people of Israel weren't asking for. The second thing to note is that God prepared an unexpected <laughs> salvation. Not only an unsought salvation, but this will be a completely unexpected salvation. In the book of Judges, you really have to learn to expect to be unexpected. The first judge is Othniel. Othniel is he's the right kind of guy. He's noble, he's valiant, he's heroic, he's strong, he's courageous, he's the leader of an army. He's the big, brave, natural leader that you expect God to raise up. But after Apotheos, it's all over the place. There's Hebrews, the left-handed, has some little surprises with his left hand. But you know, the text doesn't actually say that he's left-handed. It says he handicapped and he's, <laughs> he's handicapped in his <laughs> right-handed. He's handicapped. Even Deborah, a woman. How surprising is that? A woman with a somewhat wimpy, commander a chief. But she is aided by a tempered wielding woman who does some wonderful work on her behalf. <laughs> then there's Gideon. Gideon, basically, is a skinny man. Gentleman. He's an outcast so with a big mouth. As you go through the judges, you, you really have to get to a point where you're saying, Oh no, what's it going to be now? And what it's going to be now is handsome. But in this chapter, we really only meet the parents. We meet a little old man and a little old woman. And the little old woman is Aaron. A little, a little bit just so blunt, the poor woman. <laughs> and we're told by the narrator verse verse 2 uh, is why was sterile and remained childless. The angel of the Lord appeared to her and said, you are sterile and childless. <laughs> <laughs> woman, she had lost of a season, she, She's got it now. She's unnamed. We don't know who she is. She comes from the nowhere town of Dora. This looks like the most unlawful situation. But friends, God loves to work in unpromising situations. How often in the Bible does he promise children to barren women? Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, Hannah and Elizabeth. And then eventually he promises the saviour of the world to a woman. does he choose the younger instead of the altar? Jacob, not Esau. Ephraim, not, Nemas- uh, uh, Ephraim, not Manasseh. Uh, David, not Eliab. How often doesn't he choose the ordinary, not the exceptional? Think of the twelve disciples. Remarkably ordinary. Jesus himself, born in Bethlehem, not Jerusalem grew up in Galilee amongst the tradespeople and the fishermen in the little town, not in the religious hierarchy of the scribes and the teachers of the law and the Pharisees. Repeatedly, God works in unpromising situations. Why? Well, I think the Bible never puts it more clearly than in 2 Corinthians 4 verse 7, where it says, we have this treasure, the gospel treasure, in jars of clay to show that the all dependent the power is from God and not from us. That's why God works in unpromising situations. That's why God keeps breaking into the seemingly hopeless scenario because then you'll see this God. You'll see that it's His hand at work, it's His deliverance, it's His miraculous power. If you take those who absolutely couldn't do it themselves then you know it's God, it's the God who stands (coughs) for. Well what a great encouragement that is. (coughs) If you feel pretty ordinary, if if your situation looks perhaps almost helpless, your church is small, the ministry or a in is weak. It's really looked rather bleak and the resources are minimal. You know, that is just where God finds his stage to do some of his most stunning works. Our society hardwires us to look for promising situations. Big churches, big names, great people, brilliant sermons. But God is not limited to the big, the impressive, the large. He often works through the weak, the vulnerable, the unimpressive. Where's the gospel spreading most today? Not in the West. Not in the first world or the second world. Spreading most in countries like Africa, parts of Asia, South America. Does God need lots of money? Big names, big cities, impressive multimedia presentations to save and converted people. No. So now God reveals to this elderly couple that he is about to do the humanly impossible. He'll give them a child. And no ordinary child is that. This child, we're told verse 5, will begin the deliverance of Israel from the hands of the Philistines. He'll begin the deliverance of Israel. He won't complete it. Actually, it's an interesting thing to note that under Samson, Israel never breaks free of Philistine rule. We'll see that as we go on. Uh, Samson will be a leader who agitates and stirs up God's people under Philistine rule. He will begin the deliverance. And ultimately, we'll have to wait a lot longer in the history of God's people to see the one who complete the deliverance of his people. The nativity story of Samson that we have here in such detail and in a way can't help but make us think of the nativity of a greater and later judge, a greater deliverer. But here in Judges 13, if the pregnancy is a miracle, It's almost a secondary miracle to the encounter that they have with the angel of the Lord. It becomes clear as we read this chapter that this angel of the Lord is in fact God himself come to them in some kind of human form. His name, they're told, is too wonderful for them to know. He is too high and too glorious for them to speak to on first name terms. This angel of the Lord, this presence of God with them will not eat with them, but he invites them to take their meal and offer it as a sacrifice to them. And then, in a stunning display of His glory, he ascends in the flames of the sacrifice to heaven. What? Awe must have filled their They had seen the glory of the Lord. Most of Israel had no sense of who God was. And this little old couple had seen the Lord. Manoah. That it's all over. He knows that God is too holy to be seen by any mere human. He says, "We are doomed or die." But Mrs. Manoa is <laughs> a level-headed lady, and she reasons with her husband. If he intended to kill us, he wouldn't have come to us. If he intended to kill us, he wouldn't have said we're going to have a baby. If he intended to kill us, he wouldn't have invited us to offer a sacrifice to us. Darling, I think we're okay. <laughs> it's interesting, actually, in this chapter, Mrs Manara, whatever her name was, she's always a step ahead of her husband. I don't know what applications draw from that. What's delightful is the devotion, the obedience, the, the almost childlike trust of this country. Lord, since you're going to do this, what should we do? And since you have going to this child, how do we raise them? What's to be the rule for his life? There's this beautiful surrender and submission to the plan of God, it's a delight to see in the midst of a wicked apostate nation a nation that's rebelled against God and hardened against him and unsatisfiable and doesn't even care you find this old couple who are utterly devoted to God and just want to know how to obey him and raise a child that they will believe he will miraculously give to what an unexpected place for God to begin his salvation in the quiet, trusting devotion of an the elderly, the barren couple. I'm reminded of how revival has often begun in the church of Lord Jesus Christ. Let me recount this one <clears throat> example from church history. I think of how the revival in Ireland and Ulster began in 1859 was a great and famous revival of the 19th century. In 1856 a man by the name of James Aquila was converted. Soon after he was converted he led three of his friends to Christ and those four guys began to pray together. They'd meet every Friday night at an old schoolhouse to pray. A couple more joined them And this group of five or six young men would burn peat to keep themselves warm and they would pray long into the night. In 1858, they saw the first conversion that they'd been praying for. By the end of 1858, 50 were meeting in that schoolhouse with them to pray. And they comment on what they prayed for and I quote, we pray for an outpouring of the Holy Spirit on ourselves and on the surrounding country. This was the one great object and burden of our prayers. We held right to the one thing and did not run off anything of us. Now pray for one thing, for an outpouring of the Holy Spirit on ourselves and on their country. And in 1859, God's Spirit pain is immense power. In 1859, about 100,000 people were converted in Ulster. One guy, a few mates, burning the heads and beginning to pray on a Friday night, Lord God, send a reply on our And they stuck at it and they didn't vary their prayer for three years. The Bible. Friends, we need to remember that God works in unexpected places. And one of his favorite places that we seen is unseen, inconspicuous, devoted in prayer on the part of ordinary people who want to see God's work done. When you next desire something great at your church, or in your ministry, or in your family, remember Mr. and Mrs. Menard. God was preparing unsought salvation. He was preparing an unexpected salvation. And the last theme I want to tease open here is this. God was preparing an unhurried salvation. An unhurried salvation. In the West, we're in such a rush. We We want to buy drive-through coffee. We want to load an internet page. If I can't load an internet page in 10 seconds, then stupid side of down. I go somewhere else. You send a text message. If the person hasn't replied within seconds or certainly minutes, you wonder what's gone wrong with the relationship. <laughs> if I'm queuing at the supermarket, I'm in one lane and then the lane next to me is one or two people short. So I will change lane because I'll probably say 60. seconds. I never say 60 seconds, because there's always a lady in front of me who has trouble with her island. <laughs> and my lane gets <laughs> blocked. So frustrating. We live right in a rush, don't we, in the West? But God is never in a rush. This pregnancy will take nine months, I imagine. <laughs> it doesn't say in the text, but sometimes you have to fill in the gaps a little. <laughs> and then the boy has to grow up. The last thing that the is, you know, starts to tell us when he's growing up. Great. Right? It's going to take probably twenty years before this little fellow will be useful to Israel. God is preparing the way for a savior. He's raising up the Savior. But so he's in no rush. Israel are under discipline. They're, they're under the control of authorization and God's got a plan which can take 20 years to pull off. Great. But God's work is always unhurried. He made a promise to Abraham and you remember how long it took for that to be fulfilled? 400 years. And in the Israel, how much of the promised land did Abraham get? A graveyard. Lucky eh, he got a graveyard. Remember the promise Isaiah made in Isaiah 53 foretells the, the most astounding prophecy, the details of the death, the saviour, atoning death of the Messiah, the suffering servant. How long before that prophecy was fulfilled? Seven hundred years. Twenty years to wait around for something and nothing. We always want things to happen so fast, don't we? We want things sorted now. We want our friends saved now. We want a new convert to be in leadership very soon. I want the negative consequences of my sin removed quickly. But God has his firmness to work with. Well, we're not told much about Samson's childhood, but We are told two very important things. First of all, we're told that he was raised as a Nazarite. That doesn't mean he comes from Nazareth. It means that he's raised according to a particular vow that you can read of in Numbers chapter 6. It was a vow of total commitment and consecration to the Lord. The vow essentially involved three things, three prohibitions, external prohibitions that would signify consecration to God. No alcohol, no contact with dead bodies, because of the ceremonial uncleanness associated with them. And no haircuts. Those three things didn't of, of themselves make you holy, but those three things could be taken on, it seems to usually for a time, for a set period of time, the a way of specially concentrating yourself to God, to the service. the long-haired teetotaler who never went to the funeral parlor would in those ways symbolize externally that he belonged to God in a special way. We read of three Bible characters who were standardised for life, not just for a period of time. Samuel, Benson, and John the Baptist. And Samson, as one of those, is a Nazarite from birth. Not by his own choice. The Lord said before he didn't conceive, he will be a Nazarite. He will be outside for me. He will be consecrated for my purposes. And even his mum has to keep the vows. The second promising thing that we're told about stands in this. Right at the end of the chapter. Then verse 25, the spirit of the Lord began to stir him. Now that does sound promising, doesn't it? The Spirit of the Lord began to stir him. The word stir could also mean trouble him, agitate him, arouse him. Samson, you see, was set aside from before birth for a particular role that the Holy Spirit would enable him to take on. The Spirit would stir him up for this work. Notice, will you, that this whole chapter has the sense of building to something massive. A miraculous child set apart by God from birth to be empowered by the Holy Spirit to be the deliverer of God's people. There is no sense here that God is preparing a thug, a rebel, a bad end. No, God is preparing a saviour. Now, I could travel quickly to the New Testament and make the jump and say, and God has prepared a failure for us as well. I could do that, and later today I will do that. But right now, I don't want us to move out of Judges 13. When you're reading the Bible, it's useful to ask yourself, what would the original readers have made of? What does this mean to a Jewish reader a hundred or a few hundred years later, reading the story of Samuel, what did they see in the story before the Messiah had come? I think they would have seen themselves in a mirror. One of the things we're going to see today is that the life of and it's almost like a mirror held up to this right. I don't know how you find mirrors. Uh, I'm not a mirror man myself. <laughs> uh, I used to be to compared. Remember when I was about 13? Had hit puberty, 1970s. Uh, so I had this quite long wavy hair and I remember frequenting the mirror often to you know, to check out the looks of government. But a promising star shriveled, and I now find mirrors very impressive. <laughs> <laughs> well, Israel like it or not, we're going to have to look in the mirror when they read the story of Samson. You see, they too, as a nation, had been miraculously formed by God's sovereign grace to an old man and a barren old woman, Abraham said. They too had seen time and time again in the way that Manoah and his wife did. They had seen the glory of the Lord and encountered His majesty and holiness. They too, much as a Nazarite, had been set apart to be holy to the Lord, consecrated for Him, His holy nation, His holy people. And they too, over hundreds of years, in God's unhurried way and seen him fulfilling his purposes for them. Samson's nativity story is like a microcosm of Israel's existence. <laughs> but they have forgotten the Lord. They have forsaken their cause. <clears throat> They ignored his promises. They become impatient with his plans and his purposes. They lost regard for his holiness. They rebelled against their God and now lived contentedly under Philistine rule. And I suspect that when Israelites read this story years and years later, they were meant to shake their heads and say, how terrible to forget the God who fought us. How awful to forget his holiness and his glory. How stupid to forget his promises that he fulfilled in his own time and his own way. And would they not have said, what in this? That our God is the God who prepares unsought, unexpected, unhurried salvation. We'll see more of Israel looking in the mirror as we continue today. I think they should have seen something of their own calling in the call of Samson. And if that's what they would see, it is also what we are to see. We are meant to look in the mirror. We too as Christians have been formed by God's sheer grace. And we have seen in the person of Jesus Christ something of the glory and the majesty of God, and we've been set apart in Christ to be His holy people, consecrated for Him and for His purposes. And we're to wait patiently for the Lord, and wait patiently. But what he is doing in this world for a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like a day. And I think this morning, perhaps some of us need to shake our heads and say, how terrible that I've forgotten God's role. What an awful thing it is when I forget my calling to holiness. What a travesty. When I walk away from the rule of God and just kid myself what other people said in the agenda in my life. But oh, what a mercy. That our God is a God of unsought, unsuspected and unhurried salvation. Maybe you thought that the story of Samson, there would be some nice applications coming about using your big muscles (laughs) to serve God. (laughs) Well, you never know, those applications might be coming come back this afternoon. (laughs) Maybe you thought these talks would be about tough, macho image for Christians. But I think the first chapter of the story tells us that we need to remember a little old man and a little old woman in a little old town called Zora and learn to stand in awe of God and His purposes for His people. Because His ways are best, even when they are unsought, (coughs) unexpected, and unhoved. So let's bow. Lord God, we do stand in awe of you and the way in which you have dealt with your people now for thousands of years. And we see patterns in, the, in your way of operating We see in this chapter patterns that are familiar in scripture. You are the God of unsought salvation, and we thank you for that. Thank you for breaking into our lives and into other people's lives when we don't seek you. And you are the God of the unexpected. And you keep working in places where humanly speaking all looks hopeless. Thank you. We praise you God for that. And we acknowledge that you work in a very unhurried way. You have your own time to we pray that we would trust you and submit to you and realise that we have been called by your grace to be your Holy spirit. Help us to follow you and trust you and in that spirit of old Manoah and his wife we pray that we might devotedly and expectantly and trustedly look to you for the work that you alone can do. Work that stirs in our hearts. We pray, the Jesus Christ.